With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, June 1st, the Bureaucratic Nightmare Edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the dad of Eliza, who is six, and Leo, who is almost three. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I'm a podcaster and journalist in New Hampshire. I'm the mom of Henry, who's 15 and a half, Teddy, who's 14, and stepmom to Lily, who will be 17 in 11 days. And I am Carvel Wallace. I am a freelance writer uh, in Oakland, California, and I am the dad to Georgia, who is 11, and Ezra, who is 14. Today, we'll be joined by Andy Brown, a mother from Oakland, uh, who is facing a difficult challenge uh, with a teenager who has been encountering serious mental illness. We're going to hear from her about how she navigated that situation. And then we'll have a letter from a mother who is wondering how far to go to have a second kid under difficult circumstances. But first, triumphs and fails. Carvel, we missed you last week. Uh, was it a triumphant week or was it a uh, <laughs> fail-tastic week? It was one of those weeks that was triumphant because you you had to kind of like keep going through the midst of so much failure. Um, and so this, I, I just would say the, the logistical triumph of navigating a, a family in which every single person is suffering from some version of the stomach flu simultaneously um, was intense, as well as the fact that uh, my kid's mom is getting ready to move. And so we're going through every item that we've ever owned over the course of our entire parenting life and figuring out what to donate, what to get rid of, what to sell, et cetera. All that is, um, has been incredibly difficult and we've worked on it a lot as a family and we've gone through many moods with it. Um, but I feel like the whole thing is a triumph because, uh, the kids, mom and I are just kind of like one foot in front of the other, step by step, working side by side to get through a very tricky and difficult process. So I feel good about the way we're all working together. Good work. All right. Rebecca? I had a uh, failure this morning, but it was more of a failure of uh, because of opportunity than anything else. Um, but it was still frustrating. My son, Henry, is learning to drive. He's doing really, really well. He's been driving for a few months. The way it works in New Hampshire is there's no um, driver's permit. What you do is when you're 15 and a half, you can start driving with a parent and you rack up a bunch of hours. And then after you take driver's ed, when you turn 16, you can get your license. It's a little more like live free or die here, as is our state's motto. So typically, he does the drive to school in the morning as one of the easy ways to rack up hours. And this morning, in a very rare mistake, because basically he's been chauffeuring me around for now for like months, um, he made a left turn at a T intersection and cut somebody off. Like the guy was kind of coming at us from the right in his blind spot. And it was, to me, not even like an inexperienced driver mistake, but just sort of one of those things that could happen at any time. He reacted well. He, you know, put his foot on the gas to sort of get out of the guy's way. He knew he'd made a mistake. He's like, oh, I guess, you know, I didn't look hard enough to the right or whatever. And I was thinking, oh, this is a great opportunity because he so rarely is making these mistakes that we can like, you know, really talk it through, you know, what you have to do when you come to the intersection. Don't be casual, like act like every time is the first time, all that stuff. 
But then the guy in the truck that he cut off followed us to the high school, (laughs) pulled up next to us in the drop-off line, and proceeded to glower at us and shake his fist at us in like kind of like a road rage situation. And this was like a scary, kind of big, kind of older, crotchety-looking guy. So I got a little bit mama bear and was like looking at the guy saying, hey, my son's learning to drive, you know, chill out and can move on. And and then our talk just ended up being about, you know, that guy's a jerk, totally missing the opportunity to like impart any kind of driving lesson whatsoever. It's going to be hard to recreate that, like in the urgency of the moment with the adrenaline that comes with that kind of mistake. I got to figure it out. But, uh, you know, little bit of a failure of opportunity, but um, I guess a little bit of a triumph for getting an opportunity to shake my fist at, a, at an angry old man on behalf of my kid. I don't know. It's mixed. Uh, all right. Um I have a fail, and it's the kind of fail we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. It's a media filtering fail. Um, I've talked before about how I have a lot of comic books, and my kid sometimes finds my comic books. Um, a comic book that my kid has found that she got really into was a sort of young adult Marvel series called Runaways. Um, I read it a few years ago. It's good. It's a lot like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something like that. And so she got into it, and I thought, well, she couldn't really read. She could just look at the pictures. It's about these teenage superheroes who, who, whose parents are supervillains, and they run away from home. Um And I thought, well, this is, you know, it's a little above her grade level in terms of reading, but maybe it'll push her to, like, learn to read a little bit. And she was kind of – she's now starting to figure out how to read, and so she was – starting to understand the story and she was excited about it and wanted to talk about it. And she asked me to read it to her. And I thought, well, fair enough. Let's read this. I think it'll be fine. And we read the first six or seven pages and it was really good because it was that thing where you're reading something that's a bit advanced for the kid. And so lots of stuff comes up that they don't understand. And it gets you into all of these very interesting conversations. We started talking about video games because the kids are playing a video game in the comic book. And we started talking about like the dating relationships that they're having. And like she's very interested in this stuff and it's great. It's opening up a lot of stuff. Um, and then um, the kids in the comic are spying on their supervillain parents. They don't yet know that they're supervillains. And um, I turn the page and I'm explaining all this to Eliza and she understands it and it's very exciting. Um, and then the one of the parents in the comic book murders a prostitute. <laughs> And I had totally um. forgotten. Um, oh, jeez! <laughs> this comic that, that was like on the terrain. That like uh, you know, and and does it have to be something as banal and cliched as as the killing a sex worker? And like I just this now it's opened up a lot of conversations that I didn't want to have. And so <laughs> bedtime. I, I called bedtime, uh, which was okay because it was already pretty late but she's gonna want to pick it up where we left off and I, I i'm not quite sure how to handle that page the illustration is pretty like it's not a very explicit illustration so i could potentially describe it as like something else is happening other than what's happening uh so i need to now figure out a kind of alternative explanation of a, a, a scene in which a supervillain the father of one of the protagonists no. is murdering a prostitute <laughs> Um, Good luck with that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. So, um, oh, no. culture, high culture. I love it. Uh, at the Roth. Well done. At the Roth. Good home. job. Yep. Thanks. I love everything about that story. 100% of that story. I loved everything about it. Congratulations. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. We'll introduce our guest Andy Brown in just a minute, but first a couple of announcements. If you are not yet a member of Slate Plus, uh you should become a member of Slate Plus. You get uh extended versions of this and other great Slate podcasts. You get our great Slate Academies and Culture Clubs, including the new one on paranoid conspiracy thriller movies. Um a lot of great extra content and you help support Slate and support this show. Um, if you would like to sign up, go to slate.com slash mom and dad plus, and, uh, we thank you. And secondly, let us know what you think of the show. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. All right. So our next guest is Andy Brown. Andy is a mother, uh, and a friend of mine here in the Bay area. And, um, uh, Andy has now has two children, Clover, who is 21, and Moss, who is currently 19. 19. And Moss is the subject of our discussion today because uh, Moss has had mental health challenges that began in his adolescence and um, hit a breaking point um, several months back. And Andy's here to talk a little bit about what she's experienced with that, how she parented through it. Uh, And so we're very happy to have her on. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. So um, I guess first start off by telling us, kind of uh, giving us a little bit of a background on what, what happened. Moss was a kid who struggled with some uh, mental health issues starting middle school, ADHD kind of standard run-of-the-mill kind of stuff uh, that kind of got progressively worse, worsening into a deeper depression by high school. Um, he struggled with depression pretty severely through his last couple years of high school. And then um, he graduated in June of last year. He had been taking medication for several years at that point and started kind of experimenting with his medication and also experimenting with some uh, marijuana throughout the summer. And early into the fall, um, I started seeing some like more disturbing signs of what I didn't know what it was, but I just could tell he was just struggling deeper and deeper. Mm. At that point, we, I got him back to his psychiatrist and tried to get him um, back on or different meds or switch his meds or just talk about what was going on. And then uh, we did that. And, but then in dis- early December, he just, like you said, hit a breaking point. It happened over a few days mm. where I just saw more and more odd behavior and um, the kind of energetic talking and not making sense. And I ended up taking him to the emergency room one night. They gave him an Ativan and sent him home, mm. but it didn't get any better the next day. And then a couple of days later, I took him back to the hospital to a crisis clinic, and we decided to hospitalize him from there, mm-hmm. um, 5150. Mm-hmm. So he had to take an ambulance to the emergency room and then be taken to a psychiatric hospital where he stayed for three weeks, where he devolved into more delusional, mostly like severe delusional and very, very distressed um, thinking mm. 
which was really, really difficult to watch. Mm -hmm. Your kid be in that state. So um, he was there for three weeks and then got out for a week and then went back in for three weeks. Uh What was that time like for you? How were you feeling then? Uh, I was feeling hopeful. Uh, I felt like, okay, this is like a weird situation that, you know, now we're done with that part. And now we're going to work on getting him better. That's how I felt at the time. And, you know, um, I felt like, okay, we got to get him, like, we got to start dialing down these crazy psychiatric drugs that are making him like a zombie. And we need to, you know, I had like all these ideas about how things were supposed to go or how I would take them. And I felt like I had a lot of control <laughs> over the situation. And it was, um, and he was, you know, he had, I, I, in retrospect, I see that he was probably released from the hospital too soon. I mean, they only, you know, so there's like the 5150, which holds you for up to 72 hours. And then they they switch it to a 5250, which holds you up to 14 more days. So really, they can't hold you much longer than that. And they are under that pressure to get you out of the system Mm -hmm. um, within a few weeks if they can. And to be fair, I don't, I mean, I think that all the people that were taking care of him were doing the best they could. And um I was happy to take him home. I didn't want him to stay where he was, but I don't think that they had dialed in his medication quite well enough. And and he started an outpatient program in that week that he was home. That was like a daytime hospitalization situation where you drop him off in the morning and then pick him up in the afternoon. And they would be doing like therapy groups and art therapy. And, you know, he'd be under the care of doctors and um therapists and social workers. And his first day there, he, um, they, the, the word they use is decompensated. And I dropped him off in the morning. He was fine. And when I picked him up in the afternoon, he was convinced he was dying of cancer. Hmm. And he was just inconsolable. And they looked at me and they were like, he can't come back here. <laughs> and I was like, okay, now what do I do with him? Because mm. he's, he's mm-hmm. not well. And um, so that was really, really, really disappointing. And then and, and what did back. you do? What was the answer? Well, we took I took him straight to the psychiatrist, and they talked to him for a while. And I think that they were trying to avoid rehospitalizing him. So, you know, we were kind of taking a wait-and-see approach, which was hard because in that state, he um, is just very agitated and, like, doesn't sleep and is, you know, you – you don't sleep because your kid is up and mess, you know, like doing weird things in the middle of the night. And you're like, what is going on? And, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a very strange, um, place to be with a family member, you know, I mean, with anybody that you care about to, to be close to somebody who's, um, whose mental health is deteriorating to that point. It's just, it's very disconcerting and sad and, confusing. What is the current situation? What what kind of diagnosis did you get from us? He doesn't have so his current diagnosis is like psychosis like not otherwise specified kind of. Um I'm not sure exactly what the what they're what they write down in their book. Um but what I've come to learn is that it's um getting a diagnosis of like uh, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, which any, you know, which he could be dealing with. It takes many months, sometimes mm. years to, to nail it down. And it, they usually are waiting for a pattern to emerge um, that they may or may not see, or that people get a diagnosis that then 
will change years later. So I learned a lot going to a um, NAMI support group for parents of uh, adolescents and young adults. What is NAMI? NAMI is the National Alliance of Mental Illness. And they do support groups all around the country. And they also do a class called Family to Family, which is families who have struggled with family members with mental illness learn and teach this class to other family members. It's like 12 weeks long. And Hmm. they – I mean it covers a lot of ground. Mm. And I was um, like a noob in the class. Like Mm. everybody else had been dealing with a family member with mental illness for many more years than I had. I was like months in. You know, I mean, still only months in. So, so can you tell me a little bit about what he? You talk, you you said that when he was in elementary school, he sort of seemed like like what was he like? Tell me a little bit about what what well, you noticed with him. What he teachers was noticed always, with him? He was always uh, kind of a quiet, observant uh-huh. kind of kid, mm-hmm. and um, there were definitely all along through his younger years and adolescence teachers who were like something's not right with him. And, you know, when he was in preschool, they, they thought he was on the autism spectrum mm-hmm. or they thought maybe he had hearing problems. We had his hearing tested. Um, they, you know, they – in elementary school, he was uh, bullied quite a bit. So I spent a lot of time with teachers and the therapist at school and, like, other professionals in the school who mm-hmm. – I don't really know who everybody was. A lot of the time the principal was often there who were, you know, pushing for other things to happen but they were never really quite clear what they wanted to happen. One teacher really wanted him to have a diagnosis of something. Mm. Um, when I pressed her at the time, I was like, what would that change for him? She said nothing really in the terms of what the, they would have done in the classroom. Mm. And I said, well, I just don't feel like it's worth it then if we're not changing anything for him. Why mm. do we de- need this diagnosis? But, of course, it's, it um, planted a seed of <clears throat> doubt for me that – did get me to like kind of uh, explore those paths later. Now, when when somebody else would be like, well, something else is weird here. Like we should have him tested for, you know, another autism spectrum kind of situation. I was like, okay, great. Let's do this. We mm. went through extensive testing with him and they were like, no, he's not on the spectrum. So, wow. you know, it's, I mean, you've known Moss yeah. for a long time. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's an odd, he's an odd character. Sure. Sure. Um, but he's a sweet kid, and he's super smart and very um, insightful. And yeah, but he's he's definitely on his own path. So one of the th- things that we always get, the uh, questions that we get, and one of the things that I think you probably recognize that all of us who've been around groups of parents is like, there's this constant question and hand wringing about how do you are, are you making the right decision, right. right? So like when the teacher says your child is different. Is that teacher just bringing weird biases into it? Should you have them tested? Should you throw medication at it? Should you not? Like that seems to be the questions that we get, the things that we experience. That's kind of like a constant theme for parents. And so – but you you have the – most times we talk to parents who have kids that are six, seven, eight. And I know with Ezra, this was something Joe and I were like Mm -hmm. back and forth. Should we get them tested? Should we not? You now have the benefit of hindsight. Right. Do you what do you feel like you would have done differently if anything what if how do you see the situation differently now than you did back when he was I don't think that I would have medicated him any sooner mm. I do f- really feel um okay about the fact that we wait I waited until he asked me for medication he brought home a book on ADHD in middle school and said mom this is me and I want to try medication mm. and I was like great let, let's try it I mm-hmm. felt like he was at a place where he could make that kind of be part of making that decision for himself. 
I think if in hindsight, I would have done more to help him socially, which I think you can only do when your kids are really small. Mm. You can't really do it. In, you can't make friends for your kids in middle school. You can't make friends for – I mean, that's where I feel like his inability to connect with others underlies almost every all the struggles that he's had. Mm. So I think if I had done more in that regard, maybe more gotten him into sports earlier. Yeah, like what, or, what, what would that have been? I think just – I mean, he had plenty of friends in the right. neighborhood, right? Right. Um, but those were, I think, just kind of um, circumstantial. Like they were kids that were around and maybe – Maybe I would have gotten him into a social skills group or, you know, but I don't, like I said, because he had the friends, it's, this is only from hindsight. Yeah. I, you know, in hindsight, I wish I had done more to support his social skills. Mm. Um, maybe that could have made a difference. But he's, but he's struggling, he's struggling with mental illness, right? So, I mean, right. The, the, the he one is thing, now. Yes. I mean, yes. And that's obviously something that we know is, you know, can manifest, manifest itself in its late, late teens and early twenties. You know, we, right. we hear about that a lot. I have a sister who, right. um, had a break when she was in her early twenties. So this is very familiar mm-hmm. to me. And right. I, it's, it, the hindsight part must be tough because if you were talking about any other kind of illness, you wouldn't say, if only I had done X, Y, and Z, it would have yeah. changed something. You know what I mean? That's right. got to be tough. For well, you. I don't know. Do you think that if you had a kid who ended up with diabetes late, you know, in their teens, you would have been like, oh, maybe we should have ate better or exercised right. more? Or, sure. But not if you had a kid that ended up with cancer, right? You wouldn't be like, well, we should. <laughs> I mean, or maybe you would. I feel like <laughs> parental <laughs> guilt knows no bounds. Right. That's, <laughs> you that, know? that is true. I parental mean, it, guilt knows no bounds. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a tough one to balance, you know. Well, that see that that to me brings up. I mean, that's the main question, right? So, like, part of what I've experienced, even being on the show and having kids that are older and talking to parents of kids that are younger, is how frequently I find myself thinking, um, you know, when our kids are younger, we have this belief that if we do everything correctly, we'll avoid right. bad outcomes. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we ju- if we just choose the right preschool, right. if we just parent the right way, if we just read the right books, if we just give them right. the right toys, then and so. The flip side of that is that whenever anything bad does happen, some on some level it's because we right. mishandled a situation. Right. And with older kids now, I see how much of the way they've developed has literally, literally like shit all to do with me and Joe. Like right. we – those kids were like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and at a certain point, like the older they get, the more I'm just like, OK, make sure no trees fall on them. Right. Make sure they don't die in a fire. You know, and generally feed them on a semi-consistent basis. In the beginning, when he was very ill, I felt very, I felt, you know, of course, I felt very tender towards him. Right now, he's not as, he's doing better, and I'm finding myself getting more frustrated and irritated with him like mm-hmm. I used to. Right. Which is, that's actually almost more difficult in mm-hmm. some ways, um, because knowing what he's capable of and not capable of with his struggle is really hard. How mm-hmm. much to push him, how, how much not to push him. Mm-hmm. But overall, I think it's made – when I see somebody on the street, walking down the street screaming or, um, you know, sitting – like somebody who's clearly struggling with some mental illness, I – now I look at that person and I, I'm ashamed to say that I didn't think of this before. But now I'm like, oh, that could be my kid mm. at some point in his life. And that's really intense, you mm. know. Or, you know, I work in a restaurant. Sometimes we have people who come in and mm-hmm. – now my my reaction to those people is just different. It's mm. softened more, and I, you know, I think I'd like to think more compassionate. Mm-hmm. 
But um, as a parent, I think it's just I have come to a difficult realization that I'm going to be parenting a lot longer than my friends whose kids are off going to college. Mm. You know, I mean, there is, I think, this idea that we are done parenting when our kids are 18 or when they go to college. Like, we're done. Mm -hmm. We get our time now. Mm -hmm. And that's just not <laughs> not true, first <laughs> of all, even if your kids are healthy. But um, if your kids are not healthy or are struggling with something, you know, even less true. If there's one thing I feel like I'd want to let people know about anybody who's like struggling with these kinds of issues is that um, the shame and stigma over mental health struggles is really not doing anybody any favors. Mm -hmm. And I feel like every time I talk to somebody about it and said, oh, you know, how are you? How are your kids? Well, one of them's in the hospital. <laughs> he had a psychotic episode. Mm. And they would be like, oh, um, my brother, my son, my, mm. you know, everybody had a story. 90% of people had a story. And I just was like, wow, I, I didn't know this about any of these people. Right. Uh -huh. So, and when I was in the family to family group, we talked about it quite a bit. And there were several families who were like, my parents don't know, my employers don't know, my, um, you know, people were not talking about it with, because, and I mean, I get it. I think they were just trying to protect their, their person. Yeah. But I don't think it's helping. It's really not. If we shared our experiences, I mean, I think it's great that you, you know, when we were talking to you before this this conversation said, yeah, it's okay to use my name. It's okay to use my son's name. He said it was okay. I think we need more yeah. of that. And this, you know, you're sharing your story is obviously going to go a long way. And you guys are very fortunate to have access. And your son is very fortunate to have you. I mean, that just, it, it's really clear that um, if this... There are so many people who struggle with this who don't have the kind of support that you are um, able to provide. And, and really, kudos to you for, for talking about it. Thanks. I, I do think that we are incredibly lucky. It's We have, like I said, a, just a network of people where, you know, my friends got together and, like, um, pooled money and sent me, like, weeks of groceries. And, um, you know, they were just, they really came out in force. I didn't have a choice. As, mm. a, as a single mom, it's like I depended literally on all of those people in a way that sometimes was uncomfortable, you know, like in a way that I felt like I shouldn't have to or, but really, I think um, we all depend on each other anyway. It's just that we have this weird illusion that we shouldn't need to, or that we don't mm. really have to, or I don't know. It's, yeah, it's kind of weird, but um yeah, I'm I'm so grateful. So grateful for all those all the people that that came out for us and um and have come out for other things too, like when things weren't quite so literally crazy. Yeah. You know. All right. Andy Brown, um thank you so much for coming and talking with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you or a family member is uh struggling with mental health issues, uh check out the National Alliance for Mental Illness. Uh you can find their website at nami.org. Next up, we've got a listener question from Kimberly. Hi, I've got one of those. Do we have another questions for you? My husband and I have one child, a lovely and delightful six-year-old daughter. We've kicked around the idea of a second for years, but the timing's never been good. He was a wildland firefighter and gone for months at a time. Then he was in nursing school. Then I got cancer. There just always seemed to be a solid reason to wait. But now that we're stable enough to talk about it, we can't decide what to do. I think we're worried about making life hard again. 
And also most adoption options are slim possibilities because of my health. Unfortunately, I do still have cancer. It seems smart to just call our family perfect as is. But here's the deal. I adopted our daughter before my husband was in the picture. He's adopted her now, but he missed the early years. He's an only child, so his parents also missed out. No one makes a big deal of that. Our daughter is plenty of kid, and no one needs to miss anything with her right there. But I know what they missed. Those years were really special. So considering the slim possibilities of completing an adoption, coupled with the fact that we're happy as a three-person family, should we just put another child out of our heads? Should we take it off the table and move forward with our good life? Or should we pursue something we want in our hearts? I really appreciate your input. Okay. Rebecca, what do you think? Well, I think that this is really a tough and interesting question, obviously. I mean, that's clear. Um, I would, the only question I have for this listener that I would ask her if she were with us would be to say, is this, is this something when you say she wants it in her, in her, her hearts? Is it definitely both of them just sort of feel like it would be great, but it's all the logistics that have been at issue. I mean, if that is, if that's really the case, uh, I'll tell you, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you what I would do, which would be to figure out some way to pursue it without it taking over everything. And I know that is very, very hard as a balance because sometimes, you know, they're so wrapped up in the decision um, that they're making a choice as to something they don't even know is possible right now. And sometimes the best way to make a decision is to find out if something is possible. So if you can initiate the process, put out feelers, start um, doing the actions that you have to do to move the process along, you can still make a decision later. Um, but you might find yourself in a, a position where you have a decision to make because it sounds to me like they are deciding whether to decide now. And I know I'll tell you from from my personal experience, when I was sort of playing with the idea of having my second child, I had no idea it would happen as quickly as it did. Ultimately, what it came down to was, I saw myself in the future and said, you know what, I could imagine myself as somebody with more than one kid. And I just said, you know what, I guess the best way to find out is just to, to take the chance. Um, so I don't know. I, I, you have to obviously do what's right for your family, but I think that closing the door on it forever and, and saying that you've decided, I'm not sure the decision will actually feel like it's been made for you at this point because you've been thinking about it for such a long time and there have been so many factors that have been playing a part in the decision. So I don't know. I guess I would say if you're both game, if it's something that would bring you both joy, um, if it were to come together, maybe tiptoe into the process and then let let there come a point where a decision point comes to you and and that's how you'll maybe know what to do or that's when you'll know what to do i'm going to say the exact opposite i think that's completely <laughs> wrong and you should do the exact opposite of that here's the situation as i understand it from the caller um they both want another kid the the caller and her husband both would like to have another kid um, the reality, according to the caller, is that it's very unlikely that they will be able to have another kid because of the restrictions on, on adoption uh, surrounding her health situation. She has cancer. She has a serious medical condition. Um, and it's going to be very hard to, to arrange another adoption. Uh, and one of my fundamental rules in life is you only get one life and you should spend as little of it as possible on complex bureaucratic nightmares. 
and trying to arrange an adoption in the face of very difficult restrictions and an existing difficult health situation just sounds like exactly the kind of bureaucratic nightmare that sucks up your life and your energy and your happiness and your attention and makes everything worse and exists as a constant drag on you and your family at a time when not at a time when, at any time, you, you should be enjoying the life that you have and the life that you're living with your family. And if it seemed like, you know, if, if this, if there weren't this health condition and, and there were a significant chance that you could have another kid, then sure, go after another kid if that's what you want. Um, but putting all of the energy and, and all of the attention into a situation that, that's very unlikely to, to result in another kid, um, that does not seem worthwhile. And I think the thing to do is to give up on the thing that you want and mourn for it and then let it go and then concentrate on enjoying the great kid that you have and the great family that you have. That's fair. Yeah, I actually agree with Gabe, which is... Yes! I knew I was sick. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have come into work today. Um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, this is such an important and heavy question, and it's so difficult this this question about whether or not to have a kid is the most i think confusing and and just heaviest question really of like one's life and um but i also have found that when there is a situation like the one she described where the difficulty comes at this point from the indecision right it's like should we have a kid or should we not? Not knowing is part of what's difficult, that there is a certain kind of relief that comes with making a decision, with just settling on an answer. And I find that a lot of the fear of missing out that I experience when faced with indecision disappears once I actually make a legitimate decision. So I feel like that um, the the difficulty that comes with having a big life decision that is un settled a lot of the fear of missing out on doing the wrong thing for me dissipates once i finally settle into a decision and the fact that this person has at least floated the idea that they that they can see a pathway by which they can be happy with it with their three-person family with their kid um to me that says that you should go there you should settle down because what gabe is saying is right like the the time the hope the the confusion the logistics they go on for years with adoption and what is happening to your relationship with your first kid during that time how difficult i mean having a family is hard enough it's very hard to have a family when you're under the impression that there's this other thing you're supposed to be doing and you're constantly kind of getting your hopes up and then losing them and getting them up and it's it just takes up time and space and the time that we get to spend with our kids is so limited. And if you're, if you're the kind of person who's like, I've got to have two kids. I've known it forever. I've never not seen it that way. Then yes, by all means have multiple kids. But if there's any path by which you know that you can settle down with your one child and go through that experience um, and be present for that, I would say it's not worth it to, to try and add extra things to that. 
in her situation because there's so much other stuff. That's right. It that seems is like going to make it difficult. It seems like she has an idea about the the hus- her husband and and his family getting to be there for the infancy for for the beginning of the kid's life and that's a wonderful thing and it's it's very sad that that she missed out on that and that he missed out on that and I understand wanting that. That's a legitimate thing to want. And maybe you don't get to have that and that's very sad, but that's got to be okay. Well, it's got to be if that's the choice she makes. I mean, I guess what I'm thinking is it really does. It makes me a little bit bummed out when I hear people framing this decision around. And granted, there's a lot going on with this listener. And there are plenty of reasons, you know, why it's totally reasonable to say, hey, um, not doing this is fine. And if you feel like you could be happy with that decision, you know, it, maybe it is time to make it. I hear a lot of. The timing has not been right. The timing has not been right. The timing has not been right. And I'll tell you that Mm. in Mm -hmm. 98% of cases, the timing is not right. It's (laughs) never right. To have have (laughs) a baby or to have another baby. It's There's never, uh, hardly ever, I'm sure, there are some great 1% families who have plenty of money and are perfectly, you know, situated and have no concerns, you know, when it comes to this uh, situation. But there is never, ever a perfect time. I mean, you're always going to have someone in school or doing a job transition or traveling for work or facing an illness. Um, I would hate for it to be about only that. You know, and then and that and that the, and that later and, you know, the, the, the logistics of it are the regret that, that she sort of is unable to sort of get over, you know, were the logistics as bad as I thought they were. And so that's why I say she's she's she knows what the adoption process is. It's a known quantity for her. And if she can initiate just the, the putting the feelers out, starting the, the ball rolling without it becoming all consuming and reach a point where either it's not going to be possible or it might be possible. Do we want to continue from here? Like create a decision tree and agree on what what are the points that when would we say no? Like like create those parameters in advance. Like we'll say no if they say there's only a five percent chance. We, you know, we'll say don't, no. Don't if, tempt right. her into a bureaucratic but, but nightmare. But, You're here, but here's the thing, though. Okay, but here's okay. There's two things about that. One is I, I don't, I don't like your what you're saying makes sense, assuming that it's possible that you can enter into a potential exactly. adoption process without it, be, without it becoming. That's my caveat. I've known people who've a done whole that. emotional. That's right. that is your caveat. And I, okay, so I mean, if that's possible, it is. But the other thing too is that I think the difference between having no kids and one kid, uh, I think that's. Is different than the diff- than the difference between having one kid and a, and a second kid. Yes, and I tend to think that what you're saying about it's never the right time and so on and so forth, which is absolutely true and holds water. I think that really matters if you're going from no kid to one kid, where you're like, should I be a parent? Should I not? Oh, it's not the right time. I got to finish grad school. My partner's got to blah blah blah. Yes, that's when you need a grandmother to fly in and say, look, it's never going to be the right time. Just fucking do it. But <laughs> I think that right now the thing is. They have a child. And my, I guess now that I'm really digging into this, my main concern is is actually for that kid and for what I've seen happen to families when they get sucked into a very – which I think in this case, because of the health issues and the other things that I've mentioned, this is going to be more difficult than the normal adoption process, which in and of itself is a nightmare. And I just I, – I worry and wonder about that kid and how – 
how those things tend to stretch out. Mm -hmm. Like I'm only going to be thinking about it for a little while, but then you get some new information and now there's another six months where we're starting to prep something, but then turns out that that's not going to work out. Now there's another five months where there's a new possibility. And in all that time, the kid's life is passing by. And I feel like at a certain point, if it's possible for you to be okay with having one kid, which she implies in her question that it is possible, I would advise that as the better path, personally. All right. Kimberly. Mom and dad are fighting, guys. It's really happening. <laughs> it's really true. <laughs> Finally. Kimberly, thank you for your question. Um, write us back and uh, let us know how it goes. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, it's time for recommendations. I am going to recommend a set of iPad games that we saw over the weekend. We went away with some friends. They brought an iPad and their kids were playing these games made by a company called Osmo, where you attach a little doohickey to your iPad and it enables the iPad to see the things that you're manipulating in the real world. And then you get like a pizza set and the iPad says, make a pizza with this bear wants a pizza with pepperoni and salami. And you like put the little pieces on the pizza and then you have to count out the correct change. There's a whole bunch of these games um, and they are educational. They are fun and they exist in the physical world. So it doesn't have that thing of like your kid is just disappearing into the screen in that way. Um, they are not cheap. And um, I told my kid that we, if she really wants one, we would get it for her for her birthday. And, and that's probably what we're going to do. Um, but it's a series of games um, for your iPad. It's, the company is called Osmo. We will link to that in the show notes. Carvel, do you have a recommendation? I do. I'm recommending a book that my daughter told me to recommend, which is a book called Out of My Mind by Sharon Draper. Um, my daughter read this book maybe like a month or so ago and just had so much to say about it. It's a first-person narrative told by a character who suffers from cerebral palsy and can't communicate, can't speak, um, can't move. And... Um, it's recommended for kids probably but somewhere between fifth and eighth grade, kids 10 and up. Um, but uh, she was transfixed by the story and the writing. Sharon Draper has, I think, another New York Times bestseller. Uh, and this, there are even versions of this book that come with reading guides. And sometimes they teach it in schools because it's so well written. Um, but uh, the book, again, is called... Out of My Mind by Sharon M. Draper. And uh, that recommendation came from my daughter, Georgia. Great. Uh, Rebecca? 
Well, my son is a little bit of a movie buff, and he's turned into a little bit of an amateur filmmaker. As listeners who are been on the Mom and Dad are Fighting Facebook page may have noted, I posted a video he made a couple weeks ago. Um, he has developed this list of must-see films that he's compiled from different websites that sort of have the top 50 films of all time. And then he will talk to people when, you know, we are out and about. He'll ask people that he's talking to if there's a, if they have must-see movies on their list, and he'll add them. So he's compiled this list of, I don't know, I'm looking at it right now. I have a photo of it on my phone. Maybe something like 150 um, sort of must-see movies for anybody who's into movies. And he's been taking them off one at a time. He has been uh, throwing little film festivals for his friends. He bought a little $50 projector that he can hook up to his computer and like play the movies um, outside on a sheet that he hangs up like between two trees or on the wall of his bedroom. And then what's been the most fun is that we've been you know, as when when you all sit down to watch a movie together, anybody who's tried to do that knows that almost the most impossible part of that is figuring out what to watch when you have, you know, kids of different ages or even just a couple sitting down watching movies together. You can spend an hour just going through all the menus, figuring it out. We now have this master list. And even though some of us have seen some of these movies before, it has been like a really great experience watching them in this context, sort of as must-see film viewing. Yesterday, uh, we watched The Social Network, which I've seen before, and my son has actually seen before. But um, just because we watched it together and because it's part of this list, we were sort of able to put it in a different context. You know, the movie came out. Uh, it's about, you know, 2006, 2007, a completely different era. It's a very, you know, modern film uh, shot by a great director. And it has all of these cool issues related to social media. And it's kind of like a morality play. And it's got a great framing device. And um, the fact that it exists on this list is the reason why we did it. So this list has become a little bit of a family enterprise. And I would say that my recommendation would be to, if you like movies or have kids who like movies, start a master list of everything that you think they should see in their lifetime. Uh, have them add to it. Have their friends add to it. And then you then have something to work off of when you're looking for something to do together on a rainy day and and spurring some great conversation as a result. This is a great idea. Canonization. You're recommending canonization. I am. <laughs> Cataloging, canonization. I'll actually, (laughs) I could post this photo too on the Mom and Dad are Fighting Facebook page. And if any listeners have recommendations for movies that we should add to it, uh, I would love to hear them because um, I'm really just enjoying it and I want it to last forever, basically. You're never going to get to the end of this list. (laughs) Exactly. That's, That's the hope. All right. That's our show. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Benjamin Frisch. If you have a question you'd like us to tackle, call 424-255-7833 and visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Fighting. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoie, I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll be back next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.